The prophet Isaiah says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A banana phone? I'm going to say it again. A banana phone? What am I supposed to do with a banana phone? My family were sprawled out around my parents' living room two weeks ago, all in matching pajamas, as we like to do. And we were patiently awaiting the very first gift of Christmas. My mother, with her progeny surrounding her, ripped through the wrapping paper with precision. And inside, she discovered a banana phone. It was yellow and curved, as you might expect, and it just sat there in her hand as she looked across the room at the gift giver, my father. JT, what am I supposed to do with a banana phone? He said, well, it connects to your iPhone via Bluetooth with just a little bit of self-justification in his voice. It's for those times that you can't find your cell phone in your purse. You can just grab the banana phone instead, bring it to your ear, and have a normal conversation. To which my beloved mother replied, There's nothing normal about talking into a banana. In that brief and awkward moment of silence, the entire family took in the scene before us, not only of the first gift of Christmas, but the first strange gift of Christmas, My two-and-a-half-year-old son promptly jumped up from the floor and diffusing all of the situation, he said, Muti, I play with banana phone. (laughs) We didn't see him for 15 minutes. He walked all around the house talking to who knows who about who knows what. I love asking questions. If you know me, you know that I love to ask those kind of questions among a group that everyone can answer that sort of evens the playing field for everyone there. One of my favorite questions to ask during Advent is, what's one of your favorite Christmas presents? Because it doesn't take long. Everybody can just either go back a year or 10 years or 20 or 40 or 50, and everybody can remember at least one good Christmas present. It's this great moment as you see the nostalgia sort of to bleed through in that moment as someone can say, oh yeah, I remember when I got my, my first bicycle. Or I can remember the year my mom gave me a doll that she made. It's this great moment to see everyone have an answer. But there's a better question than what's the best Christmas present you've ever received. And it's, what's the strangest Christmas present you've ever received? Because for as much as we might have gifts that we all love, that we remember, I'm sure that most of us here can think of at least one strange Christmas present we received. One year my mother was sitting uh, by the fire and she opened up a whole set of silverware. It's kind of a strange Christmas gift, but what it made it stranger was the year before on Christmas, do you know what my mother opened? A brand new set of silverware. The last thing you need is two brand new sets of silverware two Christmases in a row. It's a pretty strange Christmas present. But even if you ask my mother today, she will tell you the strangest Christmas present she's ever received has to be her new banana phone. Certainly practical to some degree, but the problem with the banana phone is it is a gift that she doesn't really need, and frankly, it is a gift that she will never, ever use. It's not a very good gift. 
Sometime after Jesus was born, we're actually not entirely sure at what point this happened, but magi or wise men or astrologers or wizards or magicians, we're not even sure what to call them, three of them showed up at the manger. They had conspired with King Herod to find out where this new would-be Messiah was to be born. And when they discerned his fear or jealousy about Jesus, they set out ahead of him until they reached the little town of bread, otherwise known as Bethlehem. And they were overwhelmed with joy as they entered the house where the little family was huddled together. And they opened up three treasure chests with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And scripture really doesn't tell us any more than that. We don't read about how Mary and Joseph had a conversation with the Magi. We don't even know if they picked up the little baby and rocked him back to sleep. We don't even really know what their names were. And yet over the years, I have wondered more and more about this crazy manger scene. And what did Mary and Joseph think about the gifts? Were they thinking, hey, thanks for the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but where's the magi with the diapers and the pacifiers and the formula? (laughs) Did any of them offer uh, to let the parents go out for a night so they could actually get some rest? Who thought to bring the casserole to put in the fridge for those late-night meals? Gold? Frankincense? Myrrh? Are they really the gifts that keep on giving? It's epiphany. An often overlooked mark on the Christian calendar. It is a beautiful witness to the scope of the gospel going on beyond the people of Israel to even people like you and me, the Gentiles. It is missed. Because in this wonderful moment in the manger with the Magi, we witness the great scope of what God is willing to do for the world. It is the fulfillment of the words that Isaiah shares with us. Arise and shine, for your light has come. Darkness has covered the earth and all her people, but the Lord is here. His glory has appeared. Nations will come to the light, and even kings will be beckoned to the brightness of God's new dawn. Just open your eyes and look around. All have gathered together, and in the seeing we rejoice with radiance, because the true gift is with us. There's a really strange temptation in the season we call Christmas Tide, otherwise known as the time after Christmas, in which we can faintly revel in the music and the lights and even the presents that once sat under a tree. But here we are, 12 days later, and the luster is starting to lose its shine, starting to diminish as the real world catches back up with us. Some of you know I left the day after Christmas to go to Missouri to be with my in-laws. And I love being with them. I love getting to celebrate Christmas with them. But you know what the best part about going to Missouri was? I didn't turn on the news for seven days. (laughs) Friends, I didn't turn on the news for seven days. You should try it sometime. It will change your life. It was a beautiful, beautiful break for seven days. And when we got back to town, you know what the first thing I did was? I turned the TV on. I was worried about all that I had missed. All that great stuff. And I was so disappointed. I don't know if you know this, but the New York Times has had to start printing a new article every week called The Good News. And it's only ever 10 sentences long. They have had to add to the newspaper a section called The Good News of the Week with 10 bullet points because they recognize that everything else in the paper is bad. That's the kind of world we're in now. The kind of condition that we have, that almost everything that surrounds us is negative. 
that we have to augment the negativity with something positive. Oh, there was a new baby elephant born at the National Zoo. Woohoo! We're out of good news, it seems. Even the presents under the tree, the things we opened 12 days ago, some of us have taken those presents and we've already returned them. Some of us have taken those presents and we've re-gifted them to other people. Some of us have taken those presents and we've put them in a box and they will never see the light of day ever again. But gold and frankincense and myrrh, they were and they are gifts that go far above and beyond the people who receive them. Because that's one of the brilliant moments of this epiphany story. Mary and Joseph were of a certain way of life in which this was probably the first and only time they ever saw, let alone held, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Those gifts show how things are being turned upside down. Because until this manger moment, it was the poor, it was the marginalized who were expected to present presents to people like Magi, to kings and powerful people and wise men. But now in Jesus, the first are becoming last and the last are becoming first. That's the power of the light that shines in the darkness. It draws us in like flies on a hot summer night to a fluorescent neon glow and we just can't help ourselves. In the gifts, we see that something has changed. Now they weren't particularly helpful to these new parents. They weren't going to make Jesus fall asleep quicker or quit his crying or even pacify his hunger. But they do point to one of the things that's right with the church. I said on Christmas Eve that during January, we're going to spend time every Sunday talking about what's right with the church. There is plenty that's wrong. But when we live our lives like the New York Times does, like the news does on television, and we ignore what's right, then we have fallen prey to the world around us. Because there is far more that's right with the church than there is wrong. And one of the things that's right with the church is exactly what we're doing right now. And it's worship. Because here in this place, when we sing in praise, when we hear the good news of the gospel, we are living into the multitudes, into the drama that Isaiah describes. Here in this place, we are part of the great company of people from all nations and all ages. And to be abundantly clear, our church does this better than almost any other church. Many decades ago, Martin Luther King Jr. very, very famously said the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And it's still true today. If you go look at other churches on Sunday morning at 8.30 or 9.45 or 11 o'clock, you are very likely to see a room of people who all look the same. But look around the room right now. You are almost guaranteed to see someone who doesn't look like you. Someone who doesn't come from the same place as you someone who doesn't make the same amount of money as you, we are kind of an enigma. We are a very different kind of church. We owe a great debt to those who came before us who helped to make this church look the way that it, did, that, that it does. Because in most other places, the church is remarkably monolithic. But not here. However, lest our heads get too big to fit through the doors on our way out of church, we still have lots of work to do. Because the light of Christ, the thing that we're celebrating, the light that shines in the manger, it shows us who we are, but more importantly, it shows us who we can be. Not just who we are right now, but who we can be in the future. Isaiah's words, they remind us about the healing and the power that comes with the church, but they're also a sign and a witness to the fact that being the church is not just another self-help group. 
Being part of the church is having yourself made whole. It's finding healing and forgiveness and mercy such that we can receive it and move to the side so that other people can receive it. Being a Christian is not just about one's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Being a Christian is being part of a community that's bigger than ourselves, in which we encounter people who are different from ourselves. One of the things that's right with the church is the fact that it is the powerful place where we can gather with people who are different than us, who think differently, who speak differently, who act differently. I can't tell you how strange it is to stand in a place on Sunday morning surrounded by people like you, you strange people, you. Six months ago, I preached a sermon about, about politics because I love to make people mad. I preached a sermon about politics, and the basic point of the sermon was that politicians, most of them, are inherently evil people. Because all they care about is themselves. They don't fairly represent the people they're supposed to. And I laid it out. I mean, I was not kind to politicians. And after the service, I was shaking hands in the narthex, and someone came up to me, and they said, Oh, preacher, I was with you today. You were talking about that Barack Obama. He was just the worst, wasn't he? The very next person in line. The very next person in line came up to me and said, Preacher, great sermon. That Donald Trump, he's the worst, isn't he? <laughs> two completely different people from two completely different walks of life, from two completely different political persuasions, thought I was talking to them. There is something strange and bewildering and perfect and even weird and wrong about the fact that a bunch of people like you will get together on a Sunday morning. I've said this many, many times, but I believe that the church is the last best place where we willfully gather with people who are not like us. And just about every other thing we do, we gather with people like us, whether they're of the same race or the same socioeconomic bracket or even of the same political persuasion, but not on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, we are surrounded by people who, if we really knew what they were thinking, they would drive us crazy. To me, that is nothing short of a miracle. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That we might disagree on everything under the sun, but there is one thing upon which we will all agree. Jesus Christ is Lord. Sometimes that's all it takes. That's what's good and what's right with the church. That even though we are different, we are one in Jesus Christ. An epiphany... You know, we go from the darkness of Advent to the mystery of Christmas to the brilliant light of this child born in the manger. But the only reason we need the light is because the world is often so dark. And the Israelites, during the time of Isaiah, they knew what it meant to live in darkness. They were exiled people. They were living as strangers in a strange land. Some of us know what that's like. All of us should know what that's like because we are all living in our own kind of exile right now. We live in a world where far more of us are persuaded by the talking heads on television than we are by the gospel of Christ. We live in a world where we are regularly fearful of anything that appears other to us, and we forget that Jesus is the strange other who comes born as a baby, as God in the flesh. We are more likely to turn our heads away from the suffering in the world, even though we know Jesus walked into it again and again. So the question comes up again, what is right with the church? Because if we are broken people in need of grace, if we routinely make the wrong choices or we avoid making the right choices, if we perpetuate the thick darkness that Jesus came to destroy, 
Can we say that anything is right with the church? There is one thing that's right with the church, and it's Jesus, not us. Jesus is what's right with the church. Jesus is the one gift that really keeps on giving, not because he brings us prosperity or peace or preferential treatment. The gift of Christ, the light that shines in the darkness, the gift that keeps on giving is nothing short of the cross. I said this on Christmas Eve, and I cannot reiterate it enough. The same baby in the manger is the one who was hung for the sins of the world. The same child to which the Magi brought their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh is the same one who broke free from the tomb on Easter morning. Jesus is what's right with the church. Jesus will forever be the gift that keeps on giving because he gives himself for you and for me, knowing full and well who we are, but more importantly, he knows who we can be. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Amen.